Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Adam Hawkins. In each episode, I present a small batch of the theory and practices behind building a high-velocity software organization. Topics include DevOps, Lean, software architecture, continuous delivery, and conversations with industry leaders. Now, let's begin today's episode. Hello again, everybody. Welcome back to Small Batches. Today, I am speaking with Matthew Skelton. I think this will be the last time that I directly discuss team topologies on the podcast. It's a really important book, in my opinion, super important topics and approaches to team architecture and the role on software delivery. So today I have Matthew Skelton on the show to discuss his book. Let me read off his official bio. Matthew Skelton is the author of Team Topologies, Organizing Businesses and Technology Teams for Fast Flow. He's recognized by Tech Beacon in 2018, 2019, and 2020 as one of the top 100 people to follow in DevOps. Matthew curates the well-known DevOps team topologies patterns at devopstopologies.com. He is the head of consulting at Conflux and specializes in continuous delivery, operability, and organization dynamics for modern software systems. So I invited Matthew on the show to kind of close out the discussion around team topologies, kind of take a retrospective look on how has team topologies been applied in the wild? What are some of the inflection points when teams are growing? When maybe different topologies make sense versus them don't. And really just a high-level discussion about the importance of team topologies. So with that, I give you my conversation with Matthew Skelton. Matthew, welcome to Small Batches. Thank you, Adam. It's good to be here. Well, it's my pleasure to have you. I'm actually really excited to talk to you today because I've been discussing team topologies a lot on the show and also in my full-time job, I think it's really relevant to all of the work that uh, we do as engineers and it's sort of the topics discussed on the show. So I invited you on here to kind of bring the conversation back to an area that I don't, I haven't really heard it discussed so much, which is we have the ideals put forth in the book that there's these different team types and these different interaction modes. For me, I can clearly see how this would apply to enterprises at scale and larger organizations. But uh, for me, I've largely worked in small companies, either companies like, you know, maybe have 20, 30 engineers or there's two engineers or three engineers. Right. So so the questions that I like to discuss with you today are how does the model and the approach put forth in team topologies, you know, scale up as the team grows and then sort of what do you do when you are at this sort of small team perspective and you need to split or grow and sort of the impacts on software architecture. So we can start the conversation by maybe with this question is, how do you see the team topologies model applying to, say, an organization that only has one team? Then they're looking into making, say, a split either with team or software architecture. How does team topologies apply there? It's a really good question. And I like that you've taken this angle. So some key principles in in the Team Topologies book, that we're trying to optimize for a fast flow of change. What that means is we're expecting ongoing stream of changes to our software systems. That's what we mean, and that that stream of changes should be be rapid. A fast flow of change. But we're also 
making sure that we are not exceeding the cognitive load on the team that is building that software. So these are two, I mean, there's, there's several other principles that are really important, but these two are really, really important. So let's take those two principles and, and see what happens when we apply it to a single team, even if, the, even if that group of people is just two people. So it applies to two people, right? So they're building some software and they're going really, really quickly. They're able to, to get something out very rapidly. They're using some third-party tooling for things like telemetry and metrics and build and deployment and all great. That's all fine. And the company starts to get some customers. And then we start, we, we add a third engineer and she brings some additional skills on infrastructure automation. And so we can actually then automate more of our infrastructure and do some more fancy things and so on and so on. At a certain point, the remit of that team, let's say it gets to five people or six people, and they're still still going really quickly. But at some point, because of the success of what they're building, hopefully, there will be too many things for that group of people to think about. They start to need to worry about the, all of the kind of metrics and logging and infrastructure and automation and whatnot, all of this. And or they need to start dealing with an additional business domain. So instead of just, I don't know, providing digital downloads, we're now shipping something physical or we're now providing some kind of user management or my, my account feature, something like this. So there's a different business domain. And these kind of challenges can occur very, very early at very small sizes, even just in, in a group of people like five or six people. So from a very early stage, organizations should be thinking about flow, fast flow of change. What is slowing us down? Is something now, you know, six months ago, everything was fine. Now it feels like we're going slow. What has changed? What feels like is not relevant to our main core business focus? Are we dealing with too much infrastructure? Are we dealing with too much kind of automation detail? Whatever it might be. Are we dealing with too much uh, detail around maybe data privacy? Something like this. And be conscious of the difference between work that is related to the main business domain, selling data, selling digital downloads, or you know, my account versus stuff which is not really related to that, like managing data privacy, infrastructure, metrics, whatever. Use that, use these two signals around flow and around cognitive load to tell us, ah, there's probably we've probably reached a successful size where we actually need to start thinking about somehow dividing this work. Perhaps one team takes my account and one team takes the digital downloads, or we have still one group focused on, on the main uh, kind of user-focused part of the application, both downloads and my account. And another team takes on things, for example, relating to either data or infrastructure or something else, which are kind of outside of that domain. But that can happen very, very early. So we a few years ago, we, we worked with a, a startup in the media space, and they, they hit this problem at, uh, there were, I think, 11 people in that organization at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it really started to hurt hurt the speed of, delivery and, and and all sorts of kind of arguments and things happening there. It, it can appear very, very quickly in organizations. So don't get obsessed about kind of looking for to, to build a platform team or to put in place an enabling team. Think about cognitive load and flow as, as the guidance uh, kind of at all times, but particularly when, when the organization is small and use that to guide when you should start to think about, you know, bounding the responsibility, putting boundaries about responsibility. Again, with the aim of a rapid flow of change and limiting cognitive load on on the teams. Yeah, probably one of my favorite parts about the book is using the flow of change and cognitive load as the two like really 
heuristics about when to make these decisions. Mm. And I think the challenge that organizations, small organizations have is when they hit like those first key inflection points in their growth, like, hey, we're succeeding as a business. It's time to you know hire more engineers or maybe we're going to double double our staff or just things are growing, right? And the decisions made at those points in time have really long-term mm-hmm. ramifications. Like those are the hardest, like those are the hardest things to do well, but the easiest things to, to go wrong with. You can think about, you know, flow of change and cognitive load and, you know, you have, you know, engineers or new people joining the team. And then, hey, maybe you say we were, to use team topologies, one entire streamlined team. And now we're going to sort of like split maybe into two stream aligned teams or something like this. But that sort of forces a question regarding the underlying software architecture of the system itself. And I'm curious as to your experience on this, where typically, you know, teams will start off by building with a monolith. I think that's a reasonably safe assumption to start with. And then things eventually split. Organizations grow, but the underlying software architecture doesn't. So like when you hit this inflection point where you think, hey, I'm going to create a new team or maybe I'm going to create a platform team or whatever, mm. how do you think of the underlying software architecture at that point? Really great question. And you're absolutely right. There's a real danger that organizations that are unaware of things like Conway's law and kind of more generally social technical mirroring and, uh, and these kind of trust boundaries, these social inflection points, don't take the time to plan to reshape the architecture. And that's a real problem. So if you see a diagram from the Team Topologies book, or certainly a diagram that shows the teams in, in place, and, and any of the diagrams that we've created since, these diagrams are always a snapshot in time. It's always, this is how things are currently working. But that diagram is effectively both a reflection of the, the team responsibilities and also the kind of software architecture. It's sort of one and the same at the same time, and that's, that's absolutely deliberate. We're, we're suggesting that there should be this kind of very strong relationship between the software boundaries and, and the team boundaries. So if we, yeah, if, we, if we were just a single streamlined team building this customer-facing application and now we've realized that you know, the team's got too big, it's now heading towards 12 people, it's too big, we're going we're gonna to have to hire a couple more and split that team. Important question. Do you split it in terms of the business domain? Maybe. Entirely reasonable to, to split it on the business domain. Do you split it so that you, you have some kind of platform underneath? And when we say platform, we mean fundamentally a kind of curated experience for the engineers using it. Mm-hmm. It's not about technology, it's about an experience so that it enables that streamlined team that's using that platform to go to go quickly, safely. And, and not have to think about stuff underneath. Whatever that stuff right. is, it could be a design platform, a data platform, an infrastructure platform, all kind of different different platforms. The key thing there is it's about reducing cognitive load on that on the streamlined team and enabling fast flow. And there's there's no right or wrong answer. It's all it's going to be context specific as to what kind of split you put in place there. But the key thing is, just like you said before, drive the decision through a uh, focus on the fast flow of change and kind of ways to limit cognitive load of, of different teams that you end up with. So do you see that uh, the software architecture and the team architecture, ideally they should move with each other, like they should be happening in parallel or there should be a high degree of symmetry between these two things? Because like in this scenario that we were describing, 
you know, a team could choose maybe to do just for the sake of discussion here, like one of two different things. They could say, hey, we'll split the team, but not change the technical architecture. Or we'll split the technical architecture, but not change the, you know, change the teams. And each one of those, of course, has its own like problems or trade-offs. But if you're deciding to do one or not the other, I think that you've really missed a point in that you have to first consider both and then at least going to move both of these directions towards the same objective. Like, and if an organization is not doing that, then I think they're shooting themselves in the foot. Is that a fair point? Exactly. And this is where really the old style kind of software systems architecture is dead. Mm. It, it doesn't exist because designing software systems, just thinking about the technology, is a dead end. However, the new software architecture is actually really exciting because we get to think about all the technology stuff, but we also get to think about the people interactions as well. And it's a much broader remit than in the past. We have to speak to HR, you know, people department. We have to speak to the procurement department. We have to speak to maybe people who decide on budget, all sorts of things. It's actually because we really, because there is increasing kind of awareness that, that there, is these, there are these forces kind of shaping, tending to shape the, the architecture of the system then we have to take those things into account. So certainly splitting the technical architecture from the social architecture seems at the very minimum very bold and probably just foolish. Mm. There may be some edge cases where, where it is the right thing to do, but generally speaking, it seems like, particularly when you take into account organization dynamics around trust mm. and kind of a sense of kind of ownership and empowerment, then generally speaking, if we want to be able to go quickly, we have to have a high degree of trust and we don't want teams to feel like someone else has been kind of stepping on their toes or kind of jumping into their code base and, and messing things up. So that's why we have all these kind of principles around, around things like this, which then end up being reflected in how we think about the software architecture responsibility boundaries. So yes, you would, generally speaking, expect if you're changing the teams to, to change the architecture, and if you're going to change the architecture to change the teams as well. Yeah, I mean, it's not always one to one, but you would absolutely expect to to reassess what both of them look like at the same time. Yes. Yeah, this is one of the other points I actually really appreciated that was made explicitly in the book with regards to sort of the boundaries of the technical layer, and that you know each software system should be explicitly owned by one team. They are responsible for it. They're the ones who you know build it, deploy it, operate it, whatever. Then if you take that principle to the you know and apply it to the situation where we're describing when you have you know, a code base with shared concerns, the way to fit that to whatever your team architecture would be, would be to split the code base in such a way that it aligns with with the teams. Because the goal here is to create a software architecture and a team architecture that optimizes for flow of change. Right. So if one of those things is inhibiting the other, then that's the place where I think you would start at. Right? Yep. Okay. So the other thing I like to discuss with you is sort of a natural progression in the growth of teams. I'm kind of coming at this from the idea of, you say, again, you know, we're considering a small growing team and initially it's one team and then they're going, you know, they're growing. I'm kind of thinking in my mind that likely it's going to be a stream aligned team and then maybe another stream aligned team, but the likely the next team type that would enter the mix would be the platform team. After the platform team, maybe then becomes enabling team between the stream aligned team and the platform team or something like that. And maybe who knows down the line if there even a need for a complicated subsystem team. So in your experience, if you're a growing organization, 
Like what's kind of the order or general direction for how these different team types enter the wider organization? That's a nice, nice way of phrasing it. So again, just going back to the principles, our starting point is flow, fast flow of change, and, and, and then secondary cognitive load. The way to get a fast flow of change is to avoid handoffs, avoid any kind of handing off of work from one team to another. So that's why a streamlined team has end-to-end responsibility for a particular part of the domain or application or service, because there's no handoffs. It has all the skills and capabilities needed to take that all the way through to production, and they run it in production. So sometimes it's called kind of you build it, you run it. Some people call them DevOps teams, but the word DevOps kind of means all sorts of things these days. So anyway, yeah. kind of you build it, you run it. They're, they're there on call. They're responsible. They get very fast feedback from production back into the streamlined team. So if you could build all of your software just with streamlined teams, and each team had the right amount of kind of responsibility and the right skills to do the work for their particular part of, of, the, of the software, then that's great mm-hmm. because they're nice and independent. They're decoupled. We know from kind of key software architecture principles that go back decades, I mean, back to the 1960s and, and wherever, that you know, modularity and, and decoupling between software architecture kind of blocks, if you like, is a really key predictor of kind of high-performing systems. And so we're taking the same approach and, and bring it into, into the organization. So if you can run with multiple streamlined teams that are f- basically fully independent and define everything themselves, then just run with that forever. There's no mm-hmm. need to introduce anything else because you, you're optimizing for that fast flow. However, typically what happens is after a certain point, these, let's say it's three or four streamlined teams, they've got this nice fast flow of change. They're all busy kind of building stuff around their particular domain. But over time, they tend to, not always, but often, tend to end up dealing increasingly with things that are not relating to that domain, like infrastructure or data security or info, you know, information security, all of the stuff that's, that's it's several degrees away from you know, a focus on, I don't know, selling digital downloads, for example. And so at that point, they're saying, because we're having to focus on this other stuff, it's actually slowing us down. If we didn't have to focus on all these details, if we could just consume something around data privacy or something like this, then we would be able to go even faster. So that's then when discussions start to occur around what options do we have for reducing the cognitive load on this team? It's not just building a platform, because one option is we reskill people inside that team. We send everyone on a training course around InfoSec or around uh, cloud automation or whatever, or even on, because uh, we, we worked with some clients in the manufacturing sector. Mm-hmm. We did quite a bit of work around bridging the technology gap between kind of cloud and mobile and firmware and embedded software. And that's a really interesting space, actually. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe you train up all of your people in the Streamline team to understand how to write you know, um, low-level C code for, for embedded microcontrollers. Maybe that's the right thing. And be able to do cloud. I mean, mm-hmm. the problem there is that at some point you're going to be struggling to find people to fill that fill those kind of roles because there's the kind of people who can do kind of modern infrastructure automation plus cloud native apps plus firmware is kind of limited. Mm-hmm. So you, just practically speaking, you're going to have to think about what that balance of skills is. Again, eventually you come to the point where you think we've reached a cognitive load on the team. They can't go any faster. We have to find another way to start to reduce that cognitive load, and then something like a platform or maybe a complicated subsystem, which is kind of a mini platform, you tend to end up using something like that. Mm. Um, you, might, you might get away with an enabling team, which is a, a team of experts who are able to work across multiple streamlined teams for, for short periods. 
to help them understand, um, to help them bridge a kind of capability gap. So maybe that's, you know, InfoSec people would be in this enabling team, help these streamlined teams to increase their awareness. But again, once you get to a certain size, there's typically a need for something like a platform at some point where you've got five, six, seven teams now all trying to build their own InfoSec implementation and across the whole organization, that's too much time being spent on something which is not domain-focused. Yeah, I like this discussion about inflection points because for me, this is always the most interesting lens to think about these different models to see, okay, when does it break down? When do we have to change the way that something is happening or you know working, whatever? Because it sort of takes the thing to the extremes at one end. So we already talked like one inflection point, a growing team, their first like extra stream aligned team or platform team or whatever. And now you have multiple stream aligned teams, you have multiple platform teams, whatever. So it's like two inflection points. And then like we extrapolate further down the timeline in your experience working with these like SMEs and larger enterprises, what other inflection points have you seen in say the adoption of these processes or points in organizations lifetime where they should have made a certain decision? So it's still fairly early days in terms of directly applying the ideas in the book. So the book was published September 2019. So we're, what, just over a year mm-hmm. uh, after the after publication. So the type of organizations who have directly used the ideas are relatively small at the moment. Just practically speaking, it takes longer for a large organization to change. Mm-hmm. There's a really nice case study on, on our website, teamtopologies.com, from a company called U-Switch, uh, which is the UK's uh, foremost consumer utility switching. So they do... They, they help consumers to choose between different broadband providers, different mobile phone providers, different gas electricity providers, all, the, all this kind of thing. Uh, and they've got uh, different finance providers and I think pensions and things now as well. And, and there's a really interesting case study there. They're mentioned in the, in the Team to Bodies book, but they actually used, when the book came out, they used some of the ideas in there to refine what they were doing. It's a good, really good example because they started off just with independent streamlined teams what we would now call streamlined teams, independent teams. And they ran with that for as long as they could. And, and so it's a really nice example of we're not going to build a platform before it's necessary. For as long as they could, they ran with independent teams for these different kind of business domains, broadband, mobile, gas, electricity, whatever. These, these, these domains are quite different. So that actually is, is very handy for them, very convenient for them to be able to run separately like this for a long time. But eventually, these teams were focusing too much on, on kind of cloud infrastructure. And so they needed to put a platform in, but they they were very smart in the sense that they had this very strong focus on the purpose of the platform, mm. reducing cognitive load on the teams above, encouraging a flow of change, and crucially, treating the platform as a product, mm. treating platform as a product which is optional for these other teams to, to consume. So the teams were not forced to use it. Mm. The, the, the platform team had to effectively do marketing internally and demonstrate why the platform was really good. And it's such an important dynamic such an important dynamic. That feels like an important inflection point to get to the point where we realize one, something like this is needed, but it's a strong temptation to force teams to use something like this. And it's a, it's a sign of real kind of engineering maturity and, and product maturity to realize we should not force teams to use it because that will cut off a really important set of signals that tell us that we're building the right thing or the wrong thing. So that's a kind of important realization for, for lots of organizations to reach the level that, aware, that level of awareness and kind of, yeah, kind of product discipline to not force teams to use a platform and to put the effort in to make their one or more internal platforms really compelling, really kind of exciting, if you like, to use by internal teams. It seems to be a really important aspect of it. 
Yeah, I think that's actually probably one of the hardest problems to solve, yeah, yeah. just generally speaking, because say, I like to just use the example of Heroku. I'm not sure if you've ever used Heroku, but like as a developer, I've not yet found anything that's not Heroku that delivers the same benefits as a platform to the developer. Like say, let's say that I'm a developer working on one of the stream aligned teams. I know that I don't have to worry about infrastructure. I don't have to worry about anything. I just say, hey, run my web server run this process and everything is taken care of. I don't have to worry about anything. So that's a, and I have access to all of the things that I would need to do in my day-to-day work. Like if I need to execute a command in an environment, I can do that. If I have to run database migration, if I need telemetry or whatever, you know, it's all there with really minimal effort to me, which is what I want as a person working in this team, because I don't frankly care about the details of this, right? I just need it delivered to me. I've not found anything else like in any of the cloud providers or anything that delivers that kind of benefit as a platform. So then you come to any different number of engineering organizations, they're going to have sort of a, a mismatch of, hey, we use this, like we use, maybe we do cloud with AWS and we use this for CI and we deploy with this thing and it kind of makes this, or we use Kubernetes over here or we don't or whatever, and it kind of creates this, vague sort of a mass of all these different tools that make this kind of lack of a better, like what we would want to provide as a platform is a real compelling and exciting thing that the developers in the streamlined teams can use, but sort of we struggle to do that. And I think you brought it up as the inflection point, but it's also the, I think there might be an inflection point before that where you can even say, it's worth it for us to actually try to do this as opposed to like we already maybe have it, we need to refine it. Because like where is that inflection point when you know, maybe you have, say, like SREs like myself or people like in infrastructure teams or whatever who could maybe create something like this, but there definitely has to be sort of a minimum viable investment to create something that's compelling enough to use. Like, And if you don't, actually deliver on that promise, then you might be doing your team a disservice because then maybe they're disincentivized to use it or they're not happy or whatever, you know. Yeah. And so it's kind of key to have some kind of uh, effectively user research, user feedback, and the users being the streamlined teams that you're going to use the platform. Make sure that's in place. Make sure that feedback, that tight feedback is in place. There's a really interesting talk from um, the platform, the head of platforms at Adidas, Fernando Conago, who, this was a DevOps Enterprise Summit as well. And in the slides there, you can see a kind of diagram of, of how the time, how they focus their time in, in, in the platform. And actually about half of their time is spent on building new stuff. And mm. half of their time is spent on kind of advocacy and interaction with, with their internal customers. Half of their time is spent on, on, on stuff that's not writing code or, or, or running bash scripts or whatever. And that's, even I was slightly surprised, but actually it makes a lot of sense because it's so important to understand what's actually needed and just build a minimum amount of stuff. If you can get away with composing your platform from services that run entirely in someone else's cloud and all you're doing is kind of collecting them together with a little bit of lightweight documentation and a few little examples and maybe some default configuration, if that's all you do, that's brilliant. Mm. Like maybe you, you just put a tiny little wrapper around Heroku, for example. Some, some sensible config defaults and some, some, some kind of security policy, whatever it is, a tiny little bit around Heroku, and, and that's all you do. You don't need to build, you don't need to go ahead and, and create a bad version of Heroku. Like, what was the point? It's already really good. So, like, 
think about the experience that developers or engineers are going to have when they use this thing and focus on the experience, not on building stuff. Yeah. Give them an experience which is kind of curated and, and shaped for them, but you don't have to build it. I mean, it's kind of exciting to go and build something, but the, the, <laughs> you can do that in your spare time, right? If you're, if you're to do a lot of coding, <laughs> the, the key thing is the experience that the, that the customers are going to have. Well, that's the other part of, I think, the hard problem, especially for a small team, right, is that you can't just think of yourself as, say, if you're a member of this theoretical platform team that we're discussing, you can't just think of yourself as somebody who builds a platform. You have to be, you know, a marketer. You have to do end user research. You have to, you know, like really get involved in the actual product development of this thing, which may not be something that you've really ever thought Mm. of, nor Mm. like maybe even know how to do, but that's such a fundamental aspect to actually creating a compelling and useful platform, right? Mm. So like if you're a small team, it might be hard to maybe like delegate the resources required to do that, right? And it sort of also speaks to the cognitive load on the consumers of this thing, because, you know, if in theory, you can create a platform that is say, hey, we use A, B, and C, here's the docs of how to glue A, B, and C together, and for some stream-aligned teams, that may be enough because they have the skills required to understand the glue and do it all together. But other teams are composed of other developers with different skills may not have the skills required to actually do that. And you can, I think you would say you could use that as a heuristic for when you should try to, you know, sort of like level up your platform team, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, you're always using the, these two principles flow both inside the platform, but also for your customers. So use the four key metrics from the Accelerate book that predict high organizational performance, lead time, deployment frequency, change fail percentage, and mean time to restore. Bingo. And those four, make sure that you understand that your platform should be improving those four metrics for your customers all the time. It should not be badly affecting those four metrics, at the very least. And also kind of think about cognitive load and, and some other metrics like this, which give a strong indication for whether the platform is doing its job. And that's, as you said, that requires a whole bunch of skills, which lots of people who have been working in kind of infrastructure, certainly, or data, have not needed maybe before. Uh, so it's a really good opportunity to kind of broaden your kind of professional awareness and professional skill set. But at the very least, even, even if you've got like a, a full-time product manager or kind of internal platform uh, developer relations or someone then at the very least, you should be aware that you need to have some focus on developer experience, on on how do we market this? Is this the smallest thing we can possibly do to deliver the right kind of value and and reduce cognitive load? And, And these kind of questions should be the things that we're asking ourselves when we're building a platform for sure. All right, let's take a quick break from today's episode so I can tell you about my other software delivery resources. First, I'm opening up my own software delivery dojo. My Dojo is a four-week program designed to level up your skills building, deploying, and operating production systems. Each week, participants will go through theoretical and practical exercises led by me designed to hone the skills needed for continuous delivery. I'm offering this Dojo at an amazingly affordable price to small batches listeners. Spots are limited though, so apply now at softwaredeliverydojo.com. Well, if you want something free instead, I've got you there too. Find links to my free email courses and ebooks on any show notes page. My courses and ebooks cover topics in much more depth than I can cover on the podcast. They're great on their own or even as a useful complement to topics covered on the show. Find all of my free resources at smallbatches.fm. All right, let's get back into the episode. What do you think about the idea of the platform 
as a black box in the sense of like, say, if you're using AWS and there's an issue with AWS, maybe you open a support ticket or whatever. You don't try to, you know, go behind the curtain, sort of debug it yourself. So I'm coming at it from the perspective of, hey, I created this platform. There's all the documentation. You know, it should be useful to the end user in such a way that they can achieve their goal without having to, say, get hands-on support or if their application is broken or, you know, in like such a way that they should be, they should have the skills or docs or tools, whatever they need to debug it or, you know, resolve the issue as much as possible. So like, okay, yes, sure. Like maybe everybody's all part of the same organization, Mm. but uh, in your experience, have you seen things like, hey, if I'm a developer in the Streamalign team, like I open a support ticket on the platform and maybe there's some, you know, person uh, in the platform team who is, you know, trying to triage these support issues. And how do you, how have you kind of seen those dynamics work out? So nice question. So to some extent, if you have a need to open a support ticket, then something's basically gone wrong. Mm-hmm. Like ideally, we should be, it should be self-service. It should also be, we should have a high degree of observability into whatever we're using, whether that's an internal platform or a third-party platform. Like if, if it's not possible to see why, you know, some provisioning thing has failed inside AWS, that's kind of bad. We should be able to see some logs or we should be able to see some useful output and have some like a trace ID and, and be able to use that and plug it in somewhere and get some more information self-service as much as possible. But at some point, you know, we're all human. Mm-hmm. And there'll be some parts of the platform which are less uh, mature or less kind of, we haven't found all the edge cases yet, in which case we do need that kind of human support there. That should be a signal to us that this aspect of the platform that, that, that's available is not really as polished as it needs to be because this developer couldn't self-service and understand why this provisioning failed or why this data migration failed. And, and they should have been able to understand why this thing has, has gone wrong. I mean, there's two separate things, right? One is something failing, mm-hmm. and that's kind of bad. But there's two, we should be able to have a huge amount of observability and, and, and you know, self-service logs and metrics and, and diagnostics to at least get to the point where we can go, ha, that's why it's failing. It was my fault. I need to configure this thing differently. Right, I'm still self-service. Or actually, looking at these logs, this does seem to be a bug, in which case I am going to raise a ticket. But Mm -hmm. we need that level of transparency and and telemetry and things to to be able to get as close to that decision point as possible. Well, also the focus on the boundaries of these individual teams, right? Because you can sort of imagine that if you have, coming back to the example of just like a wiki page that says how to glue A, B, and C together. Okay, hey, you're the one who glued A, B, and C together. If it's not working, maybe you should be the one to debug it or fix it or try to, you know, do whatever you need to do. Whereas, say, if the platform team has provided a glued together version of A, B, and C, if it's not working, then it kind of falls on their plate. Mm-hmm. I think this really goes to the discussion of the boundaries and responsibilities are really important between these teams because, like, as you mentioned, the focus is on self-service, which I don't really hear that talked about so much in the discussion of these teams, but it's a really critical aspect of why we actually do these things. Mm. And if you think about it through the lens of self-service, then I think these boundaries become more clear. What do you think? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, that should absolutely be the goal, and particularly when we're providing something like a platform, a set of capabilities that should help us to go quickly, safely. You know, call that a platform, call it something else, whatever, but, but that, that should be the key thing. If it's not self-service, we're just blocking flow because we now have a streamlined team, so-called, that should be able to deploy all the way through to production, but is now waiting on, a, on another team to get back to them and they might not get back for two days. I mean, that's, that's fundamentally blocking flow. I mean, it's understandable if it's an aspect of the platform that's been recently developed or has a bug in it or something like this, fine, okay, it's an awkward situation. But 
generally speaking, if, if we're talking about normal activities, including things not working properly in, in the normal course of things, then it should be self-service all the way. There's basically no, no excuse now with the kind of software tooling that we've got. It's just amazing with kind of like open source API stuff, open source telemetry, open source uh, infrastructure automation, data migration stuff. It's just, there's a huge myriad of tools out there, all of which are, many of which are really, really good. And this has changed in, certainly in, in my working lifetime. The tooling now is just amazing. So there's no excuse for not making this stuff self-service. Well, maybe besides the internal will or perhaps the skills of the engineers themselves, because like, as you mentioned, the number of technologies that we have to work with you know, the different layers that we all interact with on a day-to-day basis, you know, and all the different ways that those problems can be solved or that they can go wrong does require a sufficient amount of knowledge, really a broad base of knowledge to operate effectively. And this comes back, you know, we're right back again to the point about cognitive load is that sure, you can, you know, pick all these different technologies and the different tools or to build whatever, but, you know, at the end of the day, if the developers tasked with building and operating that system can't fit that all in their head, then you have a problem. You know, mm. you could choose to load it up with all this stuff, but you don't, just because you can doesn't mean that you should. And also that, you know, speaking to your point about skilling up different members of your team, like say if you were moving to a structure where you didn't really have stream aligned teams, and then maybe there's some kind of mix of people who can do like this and that, whatever. But hey, you say now we're going to create a stream aligned team and you have to have, you know, responsibilities A, B, and C, which requires you to know like technology, you know, X and Y and be able to operate that whole system from, you know, it's designed to production and ultimately decommissioning. The members of that team, that might be of their first ever go around at that, mm-hmm. right? And you have to factor that into the composition of the people in the team and ultimately like your sort of hiring process, I think. I mean, have you seen anything like that uh, play out in any of the case studies that you've that you've seen? Uh, that's a good question. Have we seen... So what tends to happen eventually is that organizations with, with a platform that's serving multiple teams will tend to have maybe two or three different options. They'll have a nice kind of paved path or straightforward mm-hmm. approach, which, is, which, is, which works. Um, it's not super flexible, but it, it basically works if, you, if you've got certain parameters and then you can get started with that. And when that team is happy with that and wants to spread their wings a bit and, and try something a bit more... Adventurous. Um, well, a bit more flexible. But yeah, it's more adventurous, but effectively a bit more flexible allows them to do more stuff. Then there'll be some kind of API or some kind of like toolkit or something. Uh, I know Spotify, for example, have written publicly about how they do this from an engineering perspective. And so there's there's actually kind of three options that they provide, and and, and then the final one is a kind of just a set of APIs which allow them teams to kind of automate their own way of deploying and testing and things. So eventually, you'll probably end up at a large enough scale evolving platform to have these like a staircase of of options for for teams with different levels of maturity and awareness, which again is is targeted at flow and cognitive load. Yeah. So it's 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 perfect example of, of of organization, even if they're not explicitly addressing flow and cognitive load effectively, they are by by offering offering those kind of options. Right, because it's uh, different scales. One size does not fit all. Right, each team's mm-hmm. going to need different you know different things and be able to do different stuff. Mm-hmm. So I got one short question for you before before we go. Is it what is the next step for you with regard to sort of getting team topologies out there and like case studies and what's the future look like? That's a really great question. It was interesting that uh, we saw just today that um, 
the people behind SAFE, the Scaled Agile Framework, have actually um, thrown out their previous recommendations around types mm. of team and have, have, are now saying you need to use a team topologies uh, approach for, oh. for, for if, if you're using SAFE, which is super interesting. I just came across it today. So there's no doubt there's going to be some interesting work around, around very large-scale software delivery situations. Many of the clients that we've been working with over the last year have, have been running some kind of large-scale um, agile delivery approach, some more successful than others, as you might expect. There's definitely a lot of work in that space. We're working with with all companies of all, all kind of different sizes. One thing which we which we're really excited about actually is to be working with a couple of people with backgrounds in psychology. Oh, that sounds interesting. One, one in I think she's I think she's from Europe, and one uh, one person who's in um, one person who's in Australia, and they're both in the software space, but they've they've got a background in psychology. So we're going to be doing some work on uh, measuring team cognitive load Ooh. because that's one of the most common questions that we get is, hey, Matthew Manuel, how do we measure team cognitive load? And there isn't a straightforward answer now because actually applying the kind of cognitive load techniques to groups is something that has only really started happening in academia and in industry in like the last few years. So this is quite sort of, it's a new application of, of an existing concept. So we're super excited to be kind of doing some work in this space and, and uh, hopefully during 2021, this next year, we'll, we'll have something come out, which is then, there'll probably be a, a, a series of different versions of, of kind of team cognitive load assessment that come out. But that's hopefully going to be really, really useful for lots of organizations. Well, that sounds definitely better than my version, which is uh, just gauging by pain and frustration when I talk to people about <laughs> new things. <laughs> that's, not a bad, that's not a bad start. It's certainly like, a, you know, just a rule of thumb, you know. Yeah, yeah. How, how how painful is it to work with this this aspect of the platform or this this aspect of this thing? That's not it's not a bad start to get people's kind of gut feeling response. It's, it's yeah, it's a, definitely decent. a definitely a gut reaction and certainly can encourage an emotional reaction. But sometimes you know that's what you need to get started. Yeah, yeah. All right, Matthew. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was my pleasure to talk to you about some of these things that have been turning over in my mind. Is there anything you'd like to leave the listeners with before we go? It's been great to be here. Thanks, Adam. Just head to teamtopologies.com slash examples, and you'll find some more recent case studies from, from a few of these organizations, see what they've been doing. Some of these organizations have been kind of mashing up, kind of mixing a few different techniques, including one, one that's used a combination of team topologies and Wardley maps uh, to get kind of situational awareness. And uh, there's been some use of domain-driven design together with team topologies as well. So it's really interesting what different organizations are coming up with, seeing different ways to use the ideas and things in, in, in the real world. All right. Well, thank you, Matthew, for your time and hope to talk to you again. That's great. Thank you very much. See you, Adam. You've just finished another episode of Small Batches, a podcast on building a high-performance software delivery organization. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, go to smallbatches.fm. I hope to have you back again for the next episode. So until then, happy shipping. Like the sound of small batches? This episode was produced by Podsworth Media. That's podsworth.com.